Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. And today I have my friend, Jared Murphy. He's on here for the second time. He's an excellent guest and full of knowledge. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, and you're also the author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. I love that title still. I can see that all day long. Um, yeah, it's it's not aliens. Worse, it's us discovering our lost history. It's on Amazon. It's pretty. It it is a good title, right? It is a great title. Um, so I think we were just talking. Um, if if it's not aliens and it's uh, was us and we were an advanced society before this, I guess we're advanced now. I don't know. <laughs> Um, what, 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 was, what was their society like and how, like, how, how long, how far back I, are we going and what would you think their society was like? Oh yeah. The, um, yeah, that, that was what I found over three and a half, um, months of, or years of research. It was three and a half years and it was pretty easy to figure out quickly. And I think for any of your listeners to, do the research and find that we've been here as anatomically correct humans. People who look like you and I anatomically have been here for millions of years. And the questions that come of that are how many times have we been advanced? And when we say advanced or when you're asking the question, what were we like in the ancient past? We're talking more advanced than the call you and I are making through the incredibly what we think is advanced laptops or technology and cell phones or internet data, what we're doing or what our listeners are listening to. We're talking people who were able to probably directly communicate either through their pineal gland, through waves and frequencies, plants, animals, engineered soil that could not only transport electronic signals, but also electricity itself and also filter heavy metals and, you know, really complex, not just eliminating carbon dioxide, but filtering other heavy metals and uh, chemicals out of the soil. So everything from the soil to the animals on this planet were part of a, what we would, what we call a natural world was likely a large engineered system that included engineered soil to our very brains and bodies and genetic makeup that allowed us all to connect. And I know a lot of people might think right now, is he describing avatar? But think kind of like that. Think a, a very connected world that was developed and engineered over maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And we know this from the ruins that we find the way that they managed and engineered around waves and frequencies and genetics. So there's genetic information that means we found not only mummies of humans, but of animals that indicate engineering. And I don't mean like 
when we think of a dog breed or a cat that we all have right now where we want one with a shorter tail or longer ears or shorter ears where we have been practicing for hundreds of years engineering of animals we're we're talking about engineering people so that they can hear and see and communicate either with animals with plants with and through soil information that we get through either an ipad laptop or cell phone and then instead translate directly through the human brain for not just communication but for healing for growing for developing and so it came to my understanding through my research that we've been here through many other researchers work millions of years that we achieved a high level of technology that includes being able to mute earthquakes and you know the frequencies and vibrations of earthquakes so muting not just one building but muting whole cities through this engineered soil and also through stone spheres that we find all over the earth these stone spheres are part of that muting and energy frequency trend it's not just about canceling waves and frequencies but also transporting and communicating ways and frequencies are of value so one might be a conversation like you and i are having a wave and there's, there's a wave and a frequency associated with this dialogue but then there's ways and frequencies that have nothing to do with it to, as far as your ears are concerned they're static but they might be carrying other information but we're not tuned into those and then you have a society that was so advanced with this ability to either mute an earthquake or transmit electricity they fell and at some point in my, in my writing, and this is what my book is about, is that you have a society that, whether through their own design, through their own disaster, whether it be war or a meteor or a combination, they fell. And the remnants of them, ultimately they came back, they were able to recover. And what we currently identify as UFOs, what we currently see through the air and say, well, you know, there's a UFO and we know some of it's military. We know some of it is our day-to-day -day technology that our governments don't share with us, which is fine. But then there are other UFOs that very smart, very normal, very level-headed people go, I saw an alien. I saw someone that looked gray. I saw someone that looked blue. I saw someone that looked and had this shape of head and eyes. And the automatic assumption is that, well, based on what we find in the dirt, whether it's giant megalithic constructions or whether it's these identifiable, clearly not human looking creatures. And we say, well, we're visited by aliens. And the focus of my book is that a segment of our human population survived that had very advanced, not just physical technology, but genetic technology and that they were able to continue on and in continuing on for whatever reason, we are where we are. There are tribes, about 150 that are where they are, which they live in the jungles, they live in the deserts, they live in the, in the Arctic. And then we have a very advanced human society still on this planet that we have essentially misidentified as foreign, not that there's not aliens that come from another uh, galaxy or direction, we have misidentified the majority of the UFOs we do see that are not military or foreign, which are in fact advanced humans that have been living on this planet for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. 
and they recovered from whatever disaster they had. But when they did, the majority of the earth had been taken over by, you know, what we now call the dynastic Egyptians and the dynastic uh, hairpin or the Indian cultures or the Chinese cultures or what we now identify as the Incas who told the conquistadors, hey, these are not our ruins. These were built by the gods. And so these misidentifications have lent to what we now know, I think, through these UFOs, that they are not aliens. They are us. And when you do zero-point turns, when we witness zero-point turns in space and extreme accelerations, we assume that a little gray alien with big black eyes must be an alien, when in fact, if you're a human being and you have control, advanced human control of genetics, like uh, printing a heart, printing a nose, and then eventually nanotechnology that allows you to manipulate genes or the science of manipulating genes. We're doing that now with horses and animals. And although we're not saying it, we are doing it with humans. The reality is that if you wanted to be gray and short with big eyes and have heads up infrared displays for you to compute zero point turns, you would look to us your average ancestor who has developed on the planet through surviving this massive catastrophe and obliteration over thousands of years, we're in safe mode while our ancestors have continued to develop and we see them and say, well, I just saw an alien. When in fact, the reality is you're looking at a very advanced human that more than likely has tripped out their body to also mesh better with their technology. How's that for a long answer? That's a great answer. So one of the things I think, like, <clears throat> you know, about like the, um, the rapid acceleration and stuff like that, like maybe an actual physical body is not what's actually guiding these vehicles. Maybe they found a way to kind of use like an astral type of body even. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're just getting into the, you know, we are so close. We mapped uh, Australia mapped the first quantum computer about 18 or 20 months ago now. And I have followed that for, I'm a huge quantum mechanic fan as far as the specifics of how are we going to get to quantum computing? And it's not about calculating things faster. It's more about Ray Kurzweil, He's considered like a modern Leonardo da Vinci. He helped found the Google University and he wrote a book called The Singularity is Near. And it's about the idea of man and machine becoming one. And what I really, really, really like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy read. Skip the 100 pages of economic models, my opinion. <laughs> oh my God, you want to go to sleep at night? Read economic models. And, but you know, he uses it to justify like, where are we on the scale of engineering? Like where was computing 30 years ago and why does it justify that we'll be at this level of technology that human and machine will become one and how soon, and it's likely going to happen over the next, at this point, I mean, he wrote the book in 08. So it's like in the next 30, 25, 35 years, how does the singularity merge and we and machines like the distinction between just having an external chip or a tattooed machine on our arm where we can like tap out what we want or the idea of a thought pattern 
when there's the idea of that blending into one thing. And now there's this, we're just starting to comprehend the technologies right now when it comes to like quantum computing, where it's not about the speed of the processing of the unit. Like, wow, I can do math like 8.2 milliseconds faster, not seconds, milliseconds faster. So who cares? The, the point is being able to process and compute our genetic, our genome, our ability to tweak, not just whether or not you have brown eyes or blue eyes, but white skin or black skin or yellow skin or clear or translucent. And what does it look like when you're a society that can manipulate and change every aspect of your existence? And when you can communicate directly through waves and frequencies, how does that change your social dynamic? And can you shut it off? You know, can you not share a thought? Can you not share an anger or a frustration or a jealousy or affection or a love? Can you control that? We have been reduced to our basics. Like right now, like when I say safe mode, we're constant. How often have you heard, you know, we're only 10 to 14% conscious, you know? Right. Well, right. So the theory of evolution is that, well, you know, everything comes through a forced adaptation. Okay. So if we're only 10 to 14% conscious, when, what point did we establish a hundred percent consciousness? So even though the hint of the truth isn't in the, 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 this dominant theories should not be doctrine theories. Well, because it's disproven, it has not been disproven. So the theory of evolution is the strongest. So that's the, that's the, uh, that's just the overriding fact. The overriding fact is once we were not anatomically correct humans and then eventually we were humans because we used to be monkeys and then we developed this brain. Well, if the partial truth in that is that we naturally developed this through a forced adaptation, this massive complex brain, yet we're currently only 10 to 14% conscious, that doesn't add up unless we were once conscious, right? Yeah, there's definitely, in my opinion, a lot of holes in um, evolution theory, in Darwinism. Right. It's, it's, and, and, you know, I got the opportunity to interview Michael Cremo recently. And Michael, you know, he, and he is one of the foundational, Michael Cremo, I am happy to talk about in that he's one of the foundational pillars of when you look back at someone who spent 10 years doing research on, mind you, not his, but existing paleoanthropological finds. So one day we were Napoleon and Napoleon decided to go to Egypt. And a lot of people may or may not know that Napoleon and his expeditionary forces go to Egypt and go, well, hell, there's actually a Sphinx. There's actually uh, pharaohs. There's actually these pyramids. And I know it's ironic because we assume that everyone's always known that Egypt's there, including the people who lived around the pyramids. But what made modern archaeology was partially Napoleon and his expeditionary forces going to Egypt and going, oh, wow, the Bible isn't just something that we talk about. It has an actual place. There was an actual Moses probably. And there was an actual Jesus because well, here's a pyramid. And so uh, the excavations and the research into modern archaeology, what we call archaeology, starts as Napoleon goes to Egypt. 
and then what you end up having is this this boom in art history. It had nothing to do with history. They wanted to find valuable ancient objects, whether it was like uh, at the turn of the century in the 1800s, there was a thing called mummy unwrappings for mummy parties, mummy unwrapping parties. And you would actually get together and unwrap a mummy over wine and scotch and whatever. And ridiculous. Can you believe how much information we've lost genetically and Oh my gosh, the amount of information we've lost from them unwrapping. They had so many mummies, they could send them in stocks and piles like it's a, like it's a department store item to everywhere from America to, to England to Europe. And you could have an, a mummy unwrapping party. But okay, I digress. The point is paleoanthropological finds. Uh, people looking into the ancient past, ancient humans, looking for the theory of Darwinism. It didn't matter. What, what mattered was from the minute we started looking for humans, we found them, modern humans, in layers of earth that should not have modern humans, period. And Michael Cremo spends a whole book revisiting paleoanthropological finds that date back into the 1800s and to today, and what they represent is findings that are, if, if, if standard academia was willing to accept the facts, not the opinions, not the theories, but the facts on the ground, you could search no further than a place called Huelaco, Mexico. It is a find that in the 1960s, a rising star in, ge in geology named Virginia Steam McIntyre her and a hand-picked team go to, go to northern Mexico, look at a site that had been found by archaeologists. And mind you, I have a background in construction. I know what I'm looking at when it comes to, mind you, my idea of old buildings is 150, 160 max. Mm -hmm. But I've worked and remodeled really old buildings. But I know what I'm looking at. But when you send an archaeologist to do a structural engineer's job, they're not looking at it as, as someone who builds or does construction. There's a doctrine, and the doctrine is a theory because that's what they're taught. Which, And by the way, I do think that archaeologists do need to be paid to find nothing. But here's an archaeologist that's been told the story. There's been no human uh, in, in, in America, in South America. There's been no Americans. There's just no one in North America and Americas prior to like 30, 40,000 years ago, give or take. There's just no one here. And, and the people who were here were called, they kind of called them the Clovis, well, they called them the Clovis people. But that's just grouping together a bunch of unknown people. There was an article about a month ago that says, we think people have been here at least 50,000 years earlier. So that article we just discussed and just happened. But here's Virginia Steam McIntyre via Michael Cremo over 30 years of promoting this. This woman and her team of geologists, these are experts in rocks. These aren't people who casually look at rocks or look at a layer or kick it around. These are people who know their layers. They know what's going on. They know the variations. And this was a U.S. geological team. These were not just, these weren't just starters, beginners, you have it, whatnot. But what they identified in Wailaco, uh, and it's something all your listeners and everyone should look up because there are so many pieces. It'd be, you know, 
a house of cards is a bad description because, you know, if you just pull one card from a house of cards, the cards fall. But just Virginia Steen McIntyre, she shows up in the 60s clearly and easily with 1960s technology identifies with her team these superstar geologists. They are super into rocks. They're super into detail and facts. And they simply make a point that should rock everyone's world right now. 275,000 to what currently, based on the last years of description, a half a million years old for this campsite of modern humans. These are not Neanderthal. They're not Denisovan. They're not some sort of half monkey human. These are, this is a human campfire site that was found in Huelaco, Mexico, and she was run through the coals because this site shows human occupation 275,000 years ago. Now, you and I could spend three hours talking about, well, here's an example of ancient humans, and here's an example of cavemen. Here's another example of cavemen, mm -hmm. and here's a bunch of, here's some stories about Aborigines in Australia. Who cares? Right now, you and I could hop a plane like those Sengal tribes that even Marco Polo, that, that, that idiot, I'm going to say idiot missionary, decided. <laughs> you remember he was like three years ago, he was going to go to the Sengal Indians off oh, this yeah, island. Yeah, 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 yeah remember I do the, remember that guy. <laughs> this, this guy goes to an island where, one, it's illegal to go to. Not to mention the fact that if he had a clue about missionaries, they do nothing but bring diseases to new people. So here he is going to an island with people with no vaccines, no protection. They've probably never, or may, maybe, maybe they have the measles, but even Marco Polo said, don't go to this island, stay away from these people. So this guy, for anyone listening, a couple of years ago, he's a missionary. He decides to go to this island. Well, they're hostile to any, they will shoot arrows at, at helicopters. They want no anthropologists, they want no visitors, They've been alone on this island for hundreds, possibly thousands of years. Nobody knows how many are left. Some estimates are 30 to 60 people. Some estimates are as low as 12. Some say there's over 100. But these people have been alone on this island for at least hundreds of years, at least till Marco Polo. And this missionary gets off his boat, tries to wade ashore to talk to them. And of course, they kill him immediately with spears. They don't want visitors. But my point is, is that right now you and I have all these different technological devices and we live right now in a very modern society with satellites. These people live in loincloths in the middle of an island with no technology and no contact from the outer world. And so the idea that there's a highly advanced human society here that is living amongst us or around us and able to genetically manipulate how they look is zero issues for them. And Michael Cremo spent a lot of time going back over these paleoanthropological finds that showed, well, you know, here's a human being anatomically correct. Remember, it's the exception to become a, a fossil. It's not the usual. Every fossil we find is an exception to become, I actually went to a lecture about how to become a fossil because it's a job. If you, 
if you want to die in the right way to actually end up as a fossil, you are one in hundreds of millions. And so the people that, you know, that they do find a body and it, and it's in a layer unintrusive for sure. It's 5 million years old, 10 million years old, 20 million years old. So part of the frustration for you and I is like, let's have a conversation. Like, what do you think people were doing 15 million years ago? And well, the short answer for everyone listening is we don't know, but we have dogger land in Ireland and Scotland and France. This is a land that all of the listeners while we're listening and talking can Google or uh, uh, let's not use name brands. Let's do a internet search mm-hmm. that dogger land is a land of rivers and valleys and mountains between everywhere from Scotland and Ireland all the way to France was one giant continent, even to 5,000 years ago. And the latest news is that North Africa was all green, was all tropical, and that it was only in the last, you know, four and a half, 5,000 years that it, it, it dried up. But this is, again, talking about a world that's in safe mode because the people who maintained it, and when I said engineered soil earlier, we're talking about actual engineered, not, not a bunch of dead stuff died and composted and made a unique a bunch of soil. We're talking about human intervention, highly advanced, creating the most nutrient soil on earth. And from there, we have polygonal masonry that stops earthquakes. We have weird genetic information, not just in animals and plants, but in humans and in old mummies like the Paracas of Peru. We have too many pieces on a giant human clue game that point to an ancient high-tech society that was here for a significant amount of time and pre-flood. So what we call like 12 and a half thousand years ago. So I'm going to ask the obvious question that most of my, my listeners would ask. If these um, ancient society existed, why haven't we found any, um, like, for example, their technology, like a car or a plane? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I love that question. because it's <laughs> Like, I know the answer already. but <laughs> Right. But, yeah, so it's part of it is, like, I mentioned stone spheres. So... In the 1940s, uh, there was a banana plantation that started. The, the bananas that we get in the 1940s were from Costa Rica, quite a few of them. And as they're digging, and this is in my book, and uh, David Hatcher Childress talks about this. Uh, for those who don't know, he's a great researcher to look up. But David Hatcher Childress likes to talk about stone balls all over the earth. And I thought that's interesting. And when I started looking into it, you know, they're in China, they're in Russia, they're in the United States, they were found in San Francisco, they were found in Costa Rica, but you'll see these black and white photos of them being found, and they are anywhere from 64 tons down to the size of golf balls. And you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. What were they for? Well, Standard Academia says, well, they were, they were shaped and built for chiefs of very important tribes and they were buried with chiefs and remember everything's a temple everything's everything's Mm -hmm. yeah right so from south america to cambodia to egypt we find what i mentioned before cymatic polygonal construction cymatic 
has to do with waves and frequencies and polygonal has to do with these laser cut anywhere from like, like we're talking hand, you could pick them up. Some are really small. Many are 800 to up to 3000 tons stones that usually have high crystalline content are connected by metal, almost conduits like connectors of called keystone cuts with metal. But we're talking about stones that aren't just cut stones, but shaped and fitted together with the highest complexities and the highest uh, surgical precision beyond what we currently do. It's almost really like a scalpel cutting two pieces of skin. And they frequently talk about polygonal construction. You can't put a piece of paper, you can't fit a blade. And we think, oh, that's a very tight seam, like in a baseboard, in a house, and I can picture wood going together. But what you don't understand is that these blocks are up to 3,000 or more tons. And I'm talking about the ones that are in Siberia to the ones in Latin America, and some are hundreds of tons. But they're not just four-sided. They're 8, 12, 15, 18 plus-sided complex cut stones that fit together on every length of every width of every surface. Think of a Rubik's cube. That's very square and boring and all the pieces move and then they flex, but they all seem to fit close together. We'll imagine- Somebody must be really good with a chisel. Right, no shit, right? Just a, <laughs> just a oh, can I say that? Yes. Um, uh, you know, it's like you have to ignore, it's staring at a 747 in the middle ages and going, well, that's not a 747. And, and so there's a number of items. So like we could talk uh, beyond our time available and I would love to, we could talk about the, the, like the schist disc. This is something they've chalked up to being an incense burner. It's made out of schist. Mm-hmm. It's a, it looks like a flywheel, a fan. It's in an Egyptian museum. It was found in the early 1900s in a burial and it is very much, it's first off, it's made out of one piece of stone and it exactly looks like a flywheel that would be attached to a machine. And there are spools uh, in Mexico and in South America and Central America that are found. And they said, oh, those are for yarn. And so partially people only find what they're looking for. So partially it's like, okay, well, this can't be a laptop and it can't be a 747. And it's certainly sure the hell can't be a interconnecting flash drive, giant polygonal wall that actually can communicate. It's just a really big wall and it has stone. And that's the problem when it's tens of thousands of years old and been readapted to cultures and who have repaired it and restored it. And maybe even like it, maybe it had a metal plastic glass surface and then it got a plaster surface and then that went away and then it got a metal surface again. And so a lot so, of these ruins. So we're, we're basically finding bits and pieces of it that may have been reconstructed the wrong way. Basically. Yeah. So you got, you have a, an, you know, you have an Android or an iPhone, you have one of these Android devices and, well, it's shiny until it's like, you know, if it has no power, it might be shiny, but it's not very shiny and it's black when it's off. But then the glass is sharp 
And what do the moving parts do? So you get this, you know, you look at how roads or, or even buildings are readapted in neighborhoods now, or I've done, I like to do historical touring and I've gone to towns that were built uh, where Grant, our, our uh, president Grant is from Galena, Illinois. And I went there recently and I'm walking down the street and I'm looking, and I've done, mind you, my, one of the things I've done is historical remodeling for 20 years. That was one of, that's my background. Part of my background is mm-hmm. outside doing history research is doing historical remodeling. So here I am in a town that generally was founded in the 1850s. I'm walking along. I've been there the whole day. And finally somebody says to me, Oh, you realize we're not walking on the first floor. And I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And they go, well, there was so much flooding they filled in all the basements and you see all these basement windows. Then I started to notice that all the windows were arched. They said, we're actually walking on the second floor and the entire first floor of the town was filled in. And that's the same thing with Seattle. Seattle, for a lot of people who don't know, there's an underground tour and Seattle is up to 40 to 60 feet lower than the streets you're walking on, on the hillside of downtown Seattle. That makes you think of a couple of places too. Like, like, isn't Mexico City built on ancient ruins? Yes, and in France people, too is also built on top of. You, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. They people have dug into their basements or busted open a wall and found a Mayan wall, found mm-hmm. Mayan ruins, found like a sub subterranean access. They've done uh, some subways. And also like Ollante Tambo and a number of uh, the sites in uh, South America where, you know, people go look at these impressive walls, but what they don't realize is frequently they go 40 feet deep or more. We're not even entirely sure, but they've like in uh, the temple, like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, a lot of people think. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. Yeah, that one goes 40 feet deep, 50 feet deep. And they're 800. In fact, it was Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, that did the research on when they, they only found that a few years ago. And now there's a subterranean tour already, but the base foundation of uh, King Herod's temples, i.e. the, you know, everyone has heard of the Wailing Wall, but it's part of King Solomon and King Herod, the temple and the biblical history. But what they don't know is the entire thing is built out of cymatic polygonal megalithic blocks. So we're talking about a society that easily, and your original question to help continue to answer it was how old is all this? Well, there's a giant megalithic city made out of the same kind of blocks that are at this temple in Jerusalem, uh, underwater, off the coast of Cuba, and over 2,000 feet deep, about 1,700 plus meters. They found it 14 years ago, and this is, it looks like pyramids. It very much looks like a city. And the last time that that could have been above water, at that depth, even with all the plate tectonics and theories, is about 50,000 years. So when we start, yeah, when we start piecing these things together, we have to go, how old are we? Well, we know that there's anatomically correct humans that anthropologists and archaeologists and paleoanthropologists have been finding for at least 200 years. Yeah. Well, we it's know also that, that rock wall in Texas, correct? Oh, yeah, the Texas wall. That's over 20 miles, and they're like, oh, it's natural. Really? It looks like a stone wall and one of the most underreported and and there's a and then there's the New Hampshire Stonehenge. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar. Yeah, I've heard of it. 
Yeah, and and when you look at the bits and pieces that make it up, it's not just don't this uh, for listeners don't just think Stonehenge in England where they just found another one that's almost a mile and a half in diameter. That also goes to show how well we look at things because it was right next to Stonehenge, but <laughs> right. But then the New Hampshire Stonehenge is actually a series of I, I don't. Okay, so dolmens is one word. Dolmens uh, tend to be like three or four or five stones. They tend to look like a room or what was left of a room, and they tend to they tend to look like some place where where maybe Fred Flintstone would have lived. Mm-hmm. But they look highly weathered, like they were like they were incredibly well engineered, and they've just been weathered over time. There's the Montana dolmens. Um, I'm going out there soon because I'm working on my next book, and at the same time. You got the New Hampshire ones, which is a series of rooms and walls. And then you have this Texas wall, which is, I think, incredibly important because the Texas wall represents, again, it goes back to Huayalaco, northern Mexico. It goes back to right now today that there are tribes that live near advanced humans. So all along, we have advanced humans living near people who choose or have opted out or just live simpler. And then you have highly advanced humans. So just like we're left alone now, you have these advanced humans that keep getting identified in UFOs. You have their advanced technology. Not only are we finding it in the polygonal construction and things like this, just this, but we have genetic information that doesn't add up. We have genes that look spliced and they're like, Oh, isn't that everything's labeled a mystery. And then, Here we have the Texas wall and the New Hampshire Stonehenge and a number of things in North America that people have been writing about. And and I'm, again, going to credit Michael Cremo with this, even though Graham Hancock came out with a book recently about this. The reality is that there is a number of mysteries, whether it's the Grand Canyon, Texas wall, New Hampshire Stonehenge, or all the other things like Carl Lehrberger, I was able to meet him and talk with him. He's written a book about ancient America and its uh, archaeological ruins that all have solstices mm-hmm. and temple ramifications, very much like Gobekli Tepe. The reality is that I think in whatever happened pre-Younger Dryas, pre-12,600, we're chalking up everybody for everybody's info. The Younger Dryas is the new hip term for what happened for the biblical flood we're calling it the younger dryest for those who want to take notes and the there there's over a thousand scientific papers now backing up that approximately 12,600 years ago a great flood took over most of the earth would have buried that city that's off the coast of cuba we were just talking about would have buried and hurt a lot of people around the world and every tribe and every culture would have a flood myth but it appears that America and the Texas wall and a lot of the stuff that's found, there's Giants Island off of LA in California. There's an island where they say giants were found and buried. Uh-huh. And the reality is that, yeah, so there's a reality that America was occupied extensively prior to 12,600 years you ago. You mentioned the Grand Canyon, and I have brought this up before. Have you ever heard that story about a guy named Kincaid who found, like, went into a cave in a Grand Canyon and found, like, a whole bunch of Egyptian artifacts? 
Yeah, I love that story. And I, you know, in three and a half years, part of what takes three and a half years is you hear exactly this, right? Mm-hmm. I remember it was when I was writing my book, uh, I hear about this guy finding all these ancient Egyptian artifacts deep in a cavern that there was uh, some sort of, it was high up. You had to climb up to it because it was where the river would have been, you know, 6,000, 8,000 years ago, whatever. And that there were Egyptian hieroglyphs and they get led into this cave that had an extensive amount of Egyptian finds. And then the story the, the earliest conspiracies that I was able to identify as period to the story, which is almost a hundred years ago yeah. at this point. And the earliest conspiracies were the Smithsonian had arrived just like every time uh, they find a mound with a giant in it and whether it's Wisconsin or Minnesota or Ohio or all serpents mount wherever they find a giant. The idea is the, the story is within the time frame that the Smithsonian always shows up, that the stories end in the paper and that the objects or the finds are taken and then nobody hears anything more. And then of course the conclusion to that story for everyone going to look is that, there's a story that the Smithsonian took every object they've ever found in that early paleoanthropologic archaeological time frame in the 1800s and early 1900s, and they dumped it all in the deep ocean, that they just buried it. And so when it comes to the what I found about, you know, I drifted off and went down every rabbit hole that I could find about this find in Egypt, about this Egyptian find. I visited the Van Can- the Grand Canyon twice to try to identify not only that, but the Grand Canyon itself as an ancient mine. And it very much something just like engineered soil. I can tell you about it in a little bit, but Mm -hmm. the idea that the Grand Canyon was actually a slab and mineral mine. And that's why you have the straight flat faces and the, when you look at the Grand Canyon versus other mines that have been abandoned, they look very similar. But you have these Egyptians in post-Younger Dryas slash post-flood times. You have this idea that the Egyptians traveled all over. Here's what we know is true about that, and it's hard for people to accept. It's not taught in schools, is that in the Great Lakes, and, and again, I have to talk about Carl Lehrberger again. He, his book covers this also, is the extensive research of Phoenicians that the Copper Age, that we call the Copper Age, that most of the copper yeah, that we from think. the Great Lakes, right? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and Phoenicians, now here's an irony. I, I grew up Irish Catholic and I was a huge history buff. I had no idea that Phoenicians were ocean-going Jews. I did not know that they were Jewish. I did not know that they were, I just knew that they were these super badass sailors that went all over the world. Like if you wanted to transport goods, you wanted Phoenicians. If you wanted to know where something was and travel to it via any kind of a ship, you wanted Phoenicians. I had no idea that culturally speaking. And so then here we are in the Eastern United States with a Jewish scholar finding in an ancient mound burial 
forever in the Smithsonian was a burial stone with what turned out to be ancient Jewish Phoenician script upside down. And it was a quote from the 10 commandments. And then they did genetic testing. I think it was Hopalu, Hopala, uh, Hopala, it was A or B, the group. Uh, the, the point is, is that some of the Native Americans on the Eastern seaboard were easily identifiable as the potentially either the 13th tribe or Phoenician uh, uh, Jewish in origin. And we never talk about this. This is not a theory. This was genetic information that was tested. Yeah, science. At, oh, yeah. science that, that for some reason isn't talked about. Yeah, because it doesn't fit the narrative. So rather than being excited as a scientist, and see, this is where I think the, the, I, I'm a huge proponent of an archaeologist needs to be paid to find nothing. Like they need to be given all the money they need to go out on a theory, just like some of these wacky uh, high technology companies that they give everybody a ping pong room and free, free food and all the soda they want. They need to give archaeologists the ability to go out on a hunch and sift for nano finds. They need to find sand, soil, engineering. They need to be able to go, like we think that there's a site here and we think it's 60 feet deep. They need to be given the time and the money to go do it. And if they find nothing, they find nothing. So what's happened over the years, and this is important I think for everyone to understand and get their head around for the just general everyone is that the reason it's so hard, well, like, well, why doesn't Standard Academia and why, why is it the fringe or the outside? Why are we the ones, why are you and I the ones talking about ancient, highly advanced humans and that there was, why are we talking about this and not everyone? Because the people who got spent a quarter million dollars on their peer-reviewed degree to not, not that it's true, but that the theory of evolution and the theory of migration must be upheld. And so when they find something, or if you're only looking for something to validate what you're looking for, you end up with knowledge filtration. You end up with people only seeing what they want to find and seeing and hearing only what they want to see and hear because they don't get funded on their next find if they don't find what they're supposed to find. And despite that, you get what you get, what we call out of place, out of time artifacts like Jewish scripture of the Ten Commandments on a burial stone from Eastern the seaboard and the copper mines of the Phoenicians. And you therefore also have like off the coast of Brazil. And I write about this in my book. I, I requote and for everyone to read about the articles and the news, Roman galleons were found off the coast of Brazil. And that ties into the, when you talk about technology, it ties in the P. Reese Reesmack, General Reese, I'm sorry, Admiral Reese of the Turkish Navy of the 1500s. He's kind of like a George Washington of Turkey. That's at least the way it was described to me by a Turkish friend of mine. But this is an admiral who put together a map that shows the unencumbered, no iced coast of Antarctica. Oh, and, yeah. and it's like right, perfect, right? Yeah, it's, it's perfect. It looks, it's looked at by Charles Hapgood. It's looked at by basically people on their off time of the United States Air Force. And they publish on this. Again, happens in the 60s. They look at this and they go, we couldn't even sonar. We couldn't even graph the 
because right now to this day, despite global warming or whatever we call it, there is a mile or a kilometer of ice. We cannot see this coastline, yet here it is plain as day in a map in 1516 by an admiral who's putting together maps because they travel the world and they say, this is a map of a map of a map. We just collected it. And mind you, when you go look it up on the internet, you're going to see this ripped, torn piece of map that only shows this one section. What a lot of people don't know is that the P. Reese Reese map is a partial of what was once suspected to be an entire global map. And all of them are copies of maps of maps. And to give you an idea of why this map's important when it comes to technology, this map has longitudinal, the meridian lines. And the, this is not a technology in 1516. Do longitude and latitude, but to do it accurately on a globe is highly complex. It's a whole nother nerd out. But in 1516, when the Pierce Reese map is made, they did not have the math, the, the math to do it for another 65 years. It's not till the end of the 1500s that they could do what is so accurate in the Pierce Reese map that you can't not kind of go, what the hell? It's just incredible. You know, one of the things also, uh, back to the Grand Canyon thing, I don't know how many side but what bothers me too is that the Grand Canyon is like a no-fly zone for no reason. Well, the only thing I can add on the no-fly zone is a lot of people don't know this, that in the, I think it was the 50s, that if you ever go to the rim from, uh, in Arizona from, uh, you know, I usually go from Las Vegas, mm-hmm. but you go to the rim where they have Guano Point, the bat cave, the bat poop, that's Guano Point, and they mined guano from a cave there was so much bat guano that they were able to mine for 12 years straight and the cable went across the grand canyon now if you haven't been there folks there's a crack in the ground that you can stand on and you can look down and i think the next ledge you might hit is about 3,000 feet the total drop off is almost 5,000. but they had a cable run across to the cave Interestingly enough, some hot shot in the Air Force flew through the canyon in the 60s and snapped the cable line. Here's the deal. The cable line used to bring all the miners across. So I would hate to think that they got stuck in the cave and had to, like, come out. I'm hoping <laughs> – I actually don't know that part of the story. Did they, like – were they stuck in the cave or did they show up to work the next morning and go, uh, there's no cable anymore? Because some some Air Force hotshot just clipped the cable. And that legit happened. So I'm wondering if they, uh, because daily there's these helicopters that fly six tourists at a shot into the canyon. And every day, like you can stand at Guano Point and watch a helicopter, no joke, you can watch a helicopter every two minutes. And what's super impressive is to uh, photograph the helicopter, and honest to God, even if you know you photographed the helicopter, mm-hmm. go into your photos right away and circle the helicopter because I've done it, and it's really hard to find the helicopter. The perspective when you're going almost 5,000 feet deep and when you're going the width of the canyon, you do not comprehend the size and the depth and the breadth of this space. But when you look at it, just like that Egyptian thing, 
it very much looks like an ancient mine. And that's one of the things I'm focusing about in my new book, but I bring it up in my current book, mm -hmm. which is you have ancient high tech humans. If they can move 3000 ton stones, 1000 ton stones, and not just stones, but shape them with impunity. They can also work with sequoia, giant redwoods that are 400 feet tall, like Hyperion, that we only found in 2008. Somehow we didn't notice a 379 foot tree that's over 60 feet in diameter. We just didn't notice it until 2008. I talk about that in the book, but we're not talking about random wood. We're not talking about random giant trees. We're talking about a society that engineered the size of the trees they worked with. They worked with massive pieces of wood, massive stones, and they m not just shaped large things, they were able to manipulate genes and frequencies and waves. And in that whole process, when you're mining 3,000 ton stones, you make things like the Grand Canyon. The assumption is that it's just a natural uh, creation. But I can't tell you how many mines and open pit mines that I photographed that you abandon them and even 50 years later, they look like the Grand Canyon, they look natural. The reality is it is more likely that the Grand Canyon itself is the remnant of a massive mining complex. And the Texas wall that you brought up with is part of a society that was here and was annihilated along with a good portion of the world. And, and we always assume, well, ancient megalithic builders only built with giant stones and giant spears that we were just talking about that were buried under cities, by the way. And there's scientific papers that talk about right. how they muted or transported. Or maybe that's energies. just all that's left. Exactly. Right? Because yeah. What if America, just America, just, just where we are. What if from California and mind you again, think Doggerland in Ireland, Scotland, and France, that whole area was one continent. What if the coastline wasn't California and wasn't New York and Maine? What if the coastline was not 50 or 100 or 200 or 400 feet out? What if the coastline for America was maybe 20 or 30 or 50 miles out? What if it was Giant's Island? And so we, we keep forcing ourselves to say, hey, our snapshot of the ancient past we, we, we have all the ground and one day we'll dig it all up because we're basically above ground and, oh, there's a few hundred feet off the coast of Egypt. You know, there's the city of Alexandria. There's a few things in China. There's a few things off the coast of India. But we're, folks, we're talking about things that are like 50, 80, maybe 100 or 200 miles off coast of what we currently call continents that were possibly living, breathing cities, valleys, streams, mountains, and they were part of a society where now what we're doing is we're excavating inland that our coastlines and even our post coastlines a hundred feet out. These were midlands in what were a 50,000 year ago society, like off the coast of Cuba, mm -hmm. we might need to be digging in very dangerous, very deep spaces. Have you heard about that? They say they found a pyramid in Florida. Oh, uh, well, there's floating islands. I've researched those kind of the, the floating, not just bog and mud, but like in Lake Titicaca, mm -hmm. there's these floating islands that they've thatched together sort of, but there are floating, there's one in uh, the eye of Buenos Aires 
you want to look that one up. It's very weird, very cool water. They were searching for a documentary site. And in Florida, there's these floating stone islands, ironically crocodile infested and not specifically a pyramid in Florida. Are you talking like, or are you talking about the one off the coast of Cuba? No, they found a pyramid on land. Oh, I'm there. In in the Everglades, basically. In Florida. Yeah. All right, this is... And, no, it's, and it's kind of interesting. What interests me is that the geography of this. If you have a pyramid in Florida, and then not far off the coast of Florida, you have Cuba with sunken city. And then also you might have some stuff off of the Bahamas. Maybe it was all one piece. That's exactly right. Because we don't have an eye on... The, the other part is we assume it's stone when in fact they could have been using wood, metal, plastic, so many things that would either biodegrade. We've even found an enzyme, a bacteria that eats oil and products of oil and eats metal. So yeah. the reality is when you're talking about what the coastline and the uh, actual structures of a society, of a civilization would look like, they would not only be turned to dust and buried, but they could have very well as easily been eaten by microorganisms. Right. And so now we have these stone structures and we keep trying to get a mental picture. And every time they put, I'm telling you, every time they put loincloth people building the pyramid, all I can think about is loincloth people on an assembly line with, with uh, high tech smartphones. And I'm like banging rocks together to put circuit boards together because hypothetically it's possible. But, you know, and when we talk about, you were, you were mentioning like, okay, well, you asked, what are some of the other technologies that we're looking at and what are we yeah, finding? Like, like one of the things like I know too that we, other than the, the, these round spheres, one of the other common things that seems to be found throughout continents are obvious. Uh, yeah, obelisks are really interesting. They're, uh, again, it goes back to that high frequency tuning thing. So people think, oh, well, I'm creating an object. So first off, start with the soil. So if you have a highly electronic electromagnetic soil and you're creating foundations that aren't just to support, like we think we build a home or an office or a building, we think foundation, we want to build a wall that can handle snow, freeze, be warm, cold. Or we're in an area where there's a high water table like Florida where we, only, we don't build a basement, we just build a slab. But the point is we want to build a structure that's not going to crack or fall down. And so these are people that are engineering the soil to have all these properties of filtration, electromagnetic for sound frequency and cancellation. But then you have an obelisk that actually you can tap it. You can watch. I've watched videos of people tapping obelisks, just pounding it with their palm of their hand, half broken obelisks, not even full ones, and they ring like bells. And why would you have such fine tuning? And and mind you, it's not just that they're big. They're so well precisionly shaped. And the fact that they're, they're, they're crystalline content and their ability to ring. So it must have been used for some type of harmonic technology. 
it it had to have been it had to have been a frequency energy using like again you can look at if anybody wants to google uh, electronic circuit board just do just just web search electronic circuit board and ancient buildings it is grossly similar except on a building level right. we're talking about so these that. spheres the the oblique is oh, I can never see the word oblique obelisk 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 and um and pyramids I mean pyramids seem to be everywhere like I was mentioning that one in Florida they say they found one possibly in Antarctica was yeah it's all part of some kind of old technology that we just don't get no and that's the interesting thing is that even if we take the most and people keep pounding the dust on this the most famous is uh the great pyramid and what i find very interesting about that and i bring it up again i bring it up in the book is it's rarely pointed out that in the 40s when we really got into plane travel a guy flies by with the british air force snaps a photo at the right time as the sun's coming up the great pyramid there's three pyramids and in giza's a lot of people think i didn't even know i didn't know this i thought the giza plateau was the three pyramids maybe a few buildings probably some tourist stuff the sphinx you know the river i didn't realize that the giza plateau was many square miles of cities that that are all ancient and and also there's modern people living there but it's a huge area but the great pyramid of the three that are up there menkari and the great pyramid are both eight sided pyramids and it's rarely point you can go and look at the photos they discovered it in the 40s and 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 we keep seeing these pictures that get ingrained in our head that the pyramid was four sided that is not what you will see when you look is the giza pyramid eight sided look it up it is eight sided you can see it now when the sun's directly up it casts a shadow so that it looks four sided mm-hmm. it is not four sided so what's interesting to me is with the original case stones on it the originals and i'm not talking about the ones that may have been rebuilt in the last 4 or 5 or 6000 years by dynastic egyptians I'm talking about the original casing stones. Was it eight-sided? Was it built in cave? When you see it, each side of the pyramids are concaved in. So it looks eight-sided, but was it done for strength? Was it, so it still really was four-sided or was it eight-sided? And eight-sided has different acoustic properties and frequency properties. And we're talking, you and I, we're talking like the elements of it. We're talking... You know, we're talking about beating two click clacks together right now. We're not talking some complexities here. We're talking about like, well, an eight-sided object would reflect frequencies different than a four-sided. And if that, if all three, and mind you, the earliest assessments, a lot of people have been relying on a man named, uh, a very great Egyptian researcher called Flinders Petrie. Done an incredible amount of research in Egypt. But... He's one of many uh, original researchers in Egypt that also on early, early, we're talking 1700s expeditions. There were not three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. There were at least five 
or seven based on accounts. And they were raised to the ground and they disappeared. Now, that's interesting because what if the eight-sided and what if some were four-sided? And even if they were repaired over the last, repaired over the last 6,000 years, mm-hmm. and then you mix in the obelisks that ring like bells, and, each, and the question is, what frequencies do they ring at? Because some of the ones you can tap, well, they're broken. What would have been the frequency through the engineered soil, through the obelisk, refracting off the cymatic polygonal constructions and the soil and through your mind and through your pineal gland and your ability to receive and send electromagnetic frequencies and waves communications, how would we really have been interacting in this world that included everything together? Do you think it would be possible that maybe – we were working on a multi-dimensional level using harmonics. Oh yeah, and and that's the thing. People like to jump to this, like, oh, we're well, we're just light, you know, like we're just light beings, or we're just multi-dimensional. I don't think the answer is that simple. I don't think it's just, uh, oh, we evolved into this one thing and we never went back. I think the technologies that we're finding, and I, I truly would just digress with you forever. We'll have to do it again. But the idea of the different levels of connectivity, whether you're connecting to your home, let's just as an example, say I'm connecting to my home and my plant that sits on the windowsill that also provides me aloe vera, which also provides me the certain aroma in the morning, which is part of my brain entrainment to how I walk through my home when I wake up and the lighting and the sounds and the way the breeze goes through. It's not just a matter of feng shui, some mystical version of feng shui. Feng shui. It's an actual methodology. The way that we live, ebb, and flow has to do with the very soil, sounds, frequencies that we engineer the planet right to our mind's eye that we could connect to our plant or our dog or our animal and or our each other like through abilities like synesthesia and this whole thing is this interconnected web of there's not just this metaphysical side to us there's not just a physical side we're talking about connecting to each other and all the different ways that each individual person right now people listening right now might be more like i make touchy-feely i make uh you know, more of a metaphysical, I'm only saying it this way because to, to distinguish that a lot of times we separate ourselves and we say, well, you know, you get what I'm talking about, but I really do believe crystals work. Or I really do believe yoga works a certain way in my, my chakras and whatever. That's a oh. mist. And, yeah. And in my opinion, that's a mystification of a technology. And that technology includes the ability to connect with what we're talking about in a very technological way we think of technology right. like because they, they were probably working you know what we were just starting out with now is quantum physics this advanced civilization was obviously we had found some ways of harnessing what we're just beginning to learn yeah absolutely because these aren't just technologies that you're doing for just one conversation or one piece you're talking about technology that has to do with 
your ability to maybe not only grow the nutrients you need and the food that you have, but the way you move and flow in a society where getting sick means more so of being out of tune, out of balance, not, not a sheep, not controlled, not just one of many, but a unique individual that also connected with each other and, and plants and animals in a way that now seems very separated. We have people who, are, who seem very logical. We have people who seem very emotional. We have people who seem that, that are, they, they seem to catch a piece of it and neither group is wrong, but the missing connection is that it's not separate. It's not separate things. There's not a, there was no manual on this planet that said there was supposed to be 50,000 woolly mammoths, 60,000 crocodiles, 8 billion mosquitoes. You fill in the blank, right? We seem to think that if humans weren't here, that there is a set amount of whether it be insects, animals, or creatures. And this is what the earth would be if we would just stop interfering with it. The reality is, is that I don't think we understand or completely comprehend or currently have the capability to comprehend how much of this was engineered at our abilities that from the soil to the plants, that this was one giant operating, not, I, it sounds boring, but machine. It was operating together because we went through the universe and we traveled and just dealing with frequencies and static and everything in the air, that was difficult. That's hard to do. And to communicate between all these different things took a tremendous amount of foresight, thought, and process where you have everything connected in a way that causes maybe immediate communication. Whether it's you and a person, you and an animal, you and a plant, you have this interconnected uh continental universal earthly web that allowed you to connect together and that brings us to by the way something else which is i know it's a side it's not total rabbit hole but when you have a super advanced society we right now have experienced satellite sig well signals that are coming to the planet that we've never heard before that are making it back to the planet well, imagine being an advanced society that launched a satellite 50,000 years ago and not a beginner satellite like Voyager, like we're talking 1970s. We're talking like today, but in 40 years, super advanced, most quantum satellite we could ever think of. Imagine having already launched that, a self-sustaining high-tech satellite, and we launched it a million years ago, 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago how far would that satellite be? And if it was still functioning and, or if it stopped functioning and then started refunctioning because it was between galaxies or something, what if the signals that we've been recently being advertised that have been on the news that, wow, a very structured signal has been coming to the earth. It started a couple months ago. Why are we assuming that it's foreign? What about ancient human satellites and technology that are orbiting right now in the Earth's atmosphere at layers and levels that we do not appreciate because we don't have satellites that operate at those levels or at those or at those um, cycles. And then what about the ones that left this system? What about other human societies? Like we think we're very close to saying Mars has been populated by humans. The, the moon has some very unusual characteristics. We make an assumption that 
that maybe earth was occupied after the fact. But if we've been occupied for millions of years, what if we've already left and the, and the remnants and the destruction we're seeing is either self, either self-induced or it's a combination of, of other extraterrestrial impacts. Right. It makes sense. It definitely makes a lot of sense. We're not. And, no. and I know I digress because I was discussing. No, no, no. no. Yeah, I know it, we were it's talking about. It's interesting too. You bring up the satellites and stuff like that. Like by that time, if we were able to do it, we may have even been able to make like self-replicating type of satellite technology. Right. So you have a technology that could be organic, like what we think of organic now mm -hmm. uh, to bring back Ray Kurzweil's singularity is near. If we know how to program mitochondrial DNA, if we understand the mechanics of it, because there's mechanics to it, it's programming. What are we looking at when it comes to a programming that involves cellular level technology that just requires an adaptation through growth? So we think a 3D printer and we print a heart, we print a liver, we print skin, we, pr we print something that we then install on us. You're talking about a satellite that could self-repair organically or be diamondoid crystalloid. So it'd be like, it would be some sort of what you would consider a, uh, not a, a mineral, not an organic substance, but a mineral, but it would have the connectivity of a flash drive. So we automatically make these assumptions when we look to the stars that, well, whatever we're looking at is, or whatever signal we're receiving is a foreign signal. And so we can only imagine if militaries today have already realized this, if, if certain religious organizations that have been uh, colonizing the globe uh, have already run into this. So it's not a matter of just eliminating a local religion. It's like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just caught the end of a train. So, <laughs> The, yeah, sorry about that, folks. But the, uh, the idea that when the Inca were approached by the conquistadors, perfect example, they're looking, the conquistadors are sending back some of the, some of the scholars that went with them were looking at the buildings that they were creating, the buildings that they had built, and the foundational structures were so advanced. I mean, these are polygonal cymatic constructions. And when asked, hey, who built this? every time the Inca said the gods built this, the gods were here first, the gods built this because you just have to not be in construction to actually tell people in the world of standard academia to look at the structures of polygonal cymatic construction all over the earth. It's on every continent, not just pyramids, but pyramids all over the world. And I'm looking into the Florida one after we're done, but <laughs> all over the world, there's, there's all these structures that are high-tech, advanced, cymatic, polygonal constructions. And every single one of them has keystone cuts. Every single one of them have other ancillary math and devices and cuneiform tablets that indicate highly advanced math and sciences and maps like the p Reese map. They're all over the world simultaneously. And then we have this picking signals from outside of the universe or outside of the galaxy, outside of like what we know of and they're organized and they're coming at, at us like the theory of Dyson spheres. But the assumption is that they're foreign. The assumption is that these people operate with devices that are external to their body. The reality is that you could be the printer through nanotechnology 
quantum technology. You simply could build something from the very skin you carry around on your body because all of them would be nanofactories. All of them would have the ability to create something and make it real. Whether you and I are talking about a car, for our dumbed down example, we, you and I are just at a mm-hmm. party going, oh, I drove this really cool car. Oh, tell me about the car. <laughs> oh, let me send you the plans. And then instead of an email, you and I hang out at the party, have a couple of beers or, or scotch or whatever. Um, I'm going to lean on scotch. But the point is, by the end of the party, I go out to the parking lot and nanobots, a swarm that I control, have now built me the car that you think is cool. And that's a technology that for a group of people that can control genes and mitochondrial DNA, and then therefore measure, register, and manage frequencies and waves and energy and understand the magnetic, dielectric, the, make, the, the universe, the way it really functions. The capabilities of these people are so beyond what we are currently doing. And there's two parts to this. One is I think we can reverse engineer this if some of the military and the governments and maybe some of these institutions haven't already started doing. But even if they have, the truth and the most, the most urgent point is that we have clearly gone through some natural disasters that actually would not take much to enroll a large majority of humans around the planet to say, look, we have to stop fighting over religion and governments. We need to start worrying about asteroid 2022. Mm-hmm. And that with the technology and say, well, yeah, it looks like we got here before. I don't think it's negative to say, well, we might get here again. Like we might have to face one of these objects. I think it's, I think I, I'm not, I don't think I'm being optimistic to say that human society has the ability to manage this. And I think it's not just Americans, although I have great faith in our ability to rise to any occasion that we truly are a mix and a hybrid of super motivated people from all over the earth. I mean, we are one unique breed in our totality. We are quite capable of doing impossible things, but I do think the rest of the world is capable. I think together unified, we have the ability to manage a, what should be a solar catastrophic event, something where the moon, the earth, uh, Mars, shit, the sun, there is, we are going to run into objects as the solar system and the galaxy moves through the universe. I do believe if we unite on a larger scale that we have that ability to manage those threats. And that is not the topic, but I think the ancient society that was Probably here, already did it. Yeah. And they managed it. And that's another reason to build big. That's another thing. It's like, why the complexity of the large constructions? Well, again, finished surfaces are gone, wood, metal, plastic, any other surface that they may have engineered, they're gone. The stone structures are left, but what's the other reason to build big? Well, if you get flooded every 50,000 years, you might want to have a pump plant. And it might just include having 1,000 to 3,500 ton foundations. And if you have 400-foot engineered trees like Meta Sequoia, they're the granddaddies of sequoias, maybe there's a reason to engineer whole forests from California through Siberia 
through most of the earth of 400 foot, 80 to 60 foot diameter trees. Maybe there's a reason to manage that. And maybe originally, if this is engineered, because it leads down the rabbit hole, well, what if the dinosaurs were engineered like other plants and animals? Maybe the whole point of having them so big was to manage large disasters. You know, that's something that's not, we don't look at a dinosaur and go, which one do you think was domesticated? Was it the brontosaurus? <laughs> yeah, is this too far down the rabbit hole? I think we should back up. No. <laughs> I have to go with a T-Rex. Yeah, you know what? Who doesn't want, you know, because how many people you see walking around with a pit bull going, no, no, it's the sweetest dog. No, no, it's the sweetest T-Rex. I'm telling you. Well, it just ate my whole herd of sheep, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> we're, getting a, we're getting another train, by the way, so I apologize. I'm, uh, I'm right off the train yards, and uh, of course, they've decided since we're doing our interview, this is the time to bring all the new tracks. It's, it's okay. My listeners love the trains. Okay, good. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that there's a, there's a one-stop shop. The Part of what we need to do is it comes back to you only find what you're looking for. And when, when you have so many, again, it's like, think of it as adult advanced clue. It's not Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. It's more of the cymatic polygonal construction with the engineered soil, the little blue gray guy that the super nerd that the guy that would never say they were abducted by a little blue guy and they're telling you all about the little blue guy. It turns out the little blue guy is actually an advanced human who's tripped out his body for zero point turns in a device or a machine that not only allows physical travel, but to your point earlier, mm -hmm. we, we can come full circle on the idea of interdimensional or what we're identifying as interspatial or multidimensional travel, I guess for those who want to put it that way. The idea that consciousness is not tied to a body or a single entity, but it's clear that those entities still exist because we still have those uh, sightings of really strange objects that are able to move way beyond and defy physics as we know it. Yet, who would have ever been able to tell me that 30 years ago we'd be printing a heart and a liver and skin either directly into the human being with skin or a heart to transplant. I mean, would you have thought that was going to happen? Actually, when I was a kid, I thought by now we would be colonizing space. That's what I wanted. So, so I've, been my little, flying car? I, I've been a little disappointed by the future. <laughs> no shit. Where's our flying cars? Yeah, man, I, I thought it was going to be like the Jetsons or something. Yeah, where was it? You know, it's like people are like, oh, have you seen these new Teslas? Have you watched them accelerate? Yeah, they're interesting. But one, have you heard of a solar flare? And two, where's my flying car? Um, right. You know, I, I like going, don't get me wrong, cool car, but where's my flying car? Although <laughs> I can't imagine if people can't pay attention on a road, how bad. I would want to get as far away from a city with flying cars as possible. <laughs> Give it 20 years. I mean, I just had LASIK, and I'm in a flying car. Okay, I'm running. <laughs> okay, too, too, too far, maybe. I don't know. They, I, I, I don't know. I trust my driving in a flying car. I just, okay, yeah, but, you know, you got all these people, like, the minute they could do a self-driving car, 
they're letting they're falling you know you got the story of the guy in california falling asleep in the back of his car because he's letting the car drive him to work and it's yeah. like i would never give up control to a flying but can you imagine a flying car and you're not flying it like no, what if that's flying? Yeah, see, what if that's the only option? It's like you get the flying car, but you can't actually fly it unless you have a license. Oh, so then, suck. no shit. What if the thing went down? What if it like, what if it actually broke, and then now you are, uh, you're now in manual control, and you don't actually know how to fly it. That <laughs> I had to get out the the manual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the time to like web search that. No. <laughs> and then you got you got a few seconds before you hit the ground, or you got to hit the parachute real fast, or the eject. And then and then what what's your insurance look like? Because what's the liability when you run into dominoes of the future? Right, your your flying car hits the shopping mall, and you take out the food court. Like, what does that cost? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how much that would cost. I mean, all right. See, nobody's now with nobody the cars, though. <laughs> right, it does, but it's like, on the other hand, maybe you'll have enough nanobots to rebuild it all and it won't be a problem. Exactly. You know, maybe then. it's just, yeah, it's just lost income for like two days of rebuild. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that, you know, and one more thing on the technology, you were talking about like, what are some of the indicators of how do we know that there was an advanced society here and how do we know it was readapted? And one of my favorites, and it's rarely talked about, is, um, well, the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara in Egypt is brought up a lot. There's some really cool documentaries about it by a bunch of people, and I think they're really worth your time to go look at. But the point of the Steppe Pyramid isn't the Steppe Pyramid. It's cited as Egypt's, one of their first pyramids, that this was an experiment that the dynastic Egyptians did when they were trying to figure out how to build the Great Pyramid and the other Great Pyramids that are so highly interesting, advanced. But the Step Pyramid isn't interesting because it's made out of mud brick. It indicates that that was built by dynastic Egyptians because it was basically built with twigs. By using mud brick, this is not a complex building. But the underground, it was pointed out by a number of researchers even in the 1800s and the early 1900s that it says if there were two different builders subterranean of the Saqqara Step Pyramid is highly advanced, made out of the hardest stones and granites. And it is 90 feet tall. And what's, uh, there's a lot of things about it. There's, it's super interesting. But the most interesting thing is they found all these vases and you're like, oh yeah, you know, vases. They put stuff in them for people who are dead and maybe water. No, 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 no. These vases, and we're not talking a couple, they're like, oh, they found a lot. Oh, lucky, fine. They found, the estimates are between 40-something and 60,000 vases. Some of them Successive. had... Yeah, right? That's, that's, that's a lot of vases. But here's what's more important about it. The vases themselves have been machined, like on a lathe. At, so think of a big cube uh, block of clay, and you stick your fingers in it on a, on, on a spinning you know, top and you mm -hmm. shape a, a vase and you do it by sticking your fingers in it. And as the clay spins on the wheel, you shape a vase. Well, when you're dealing with, let's talk about this, uh, like shale, schist, um, quartzites, 
uh, other granites. Think of the some of the most highly crystalline and also fragile uh, obsidian. Think of some of the most delicate, difficult stones for us today to work with in ways that we cannot work with them to today. And these people, these are stones, people. They're not clay. They would have to they be using either diamond tools or lasers, probably. Yeah, they had to have to use a machine CNC lathe. They would have to use a lathe. These are not eyeballed to perfection. You have to carve the outside and you have to carve the inside. And here's the other added layer of interesting. And again, I'm like everyone. I got stuck looking at the pyramids for a long time. But the interesting thing about these vases is that some of them have been machined. Machined. One, you can see the machining lines in them. Two, they're so thin. You can see your hand through them. They intentionally machine them so thin. Think about a single piece of crystal catching on a blade and just shattering or cracking or chipping one of these vases. These 40-something to 60,000 vases. And here's the funny part. A lot of them were found. They didn't have lids anymore. They had mud brick made lids. They were made like, it was, it was like you and I get, uh, you know, pick the car you want. We get the entire car built except for the exterior. And then we finished it off with two by fours and plywood. <laughs> that, that would be the equivalent of putting a mud brick, a mud baked lid that was shaped and formed for one of these vases on these vases. And so somebody of, repurposed these vases probably. Exactly. And that's the deal is that when you back up and put on a filter and whether it's my book or whatever you're looking at and you start looking at what's being found in the ground on the earth, it only adds up to a highly advanced society that was already functioning and here. And then it's hard enough to process all the pieces like in a game of Clue. So everybody get a notebook and start writing it down because this is not just our history. It is our future. This is not a search and recovery. It's a search and rescue. And I, what I mean by that is the technology that we've already achieved, the genetic information that's already available in ancient mummies like the Paracas and all over the world. This is genetic information that can be applied, not just to find our history and our origins, but the technology to re-engineer the best of what, what we once were and to help us out of this dead end that we seemingly are in. And the idea that we need to fight each other, we don't need to do that. We need to focus on not global, we need to focus on galactic threats, not just from aliens, but from actual asteroids and meteors. We need to have impact plans and also a global, um, there has to be at some point some global acceptance that we are not separate human beings. We are one connected society in basically safe mode. Um, I spoke with, I had a interview a couple days ago, a medium and she wasn't always a medium. She went to something, some type of um, harmonic extension, awakening, retreat, or something like that. 
and and it changed her in some weird way. Like like now she's able, you know, to see things as more as a whole, as we would say. Um, do you think that people are slowly starting to kind of come out of this safe mode? And are starting oh, yeah. to figure out ways to do it, or you know, at least to a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. I've talked about him before, but a couple of years ago, the first time Wim Hof, the Iceman, was came to America, he came to San Francisco to to um, Treasure Island, and I had a friend who I had never heard of him. I had no idea who the Iceman was. I didn't know he held twenty six world records and that he could control his body temperature, even if it was. He was barefoot and in shorts and 20 below zero. There's a, an, a thing called Tibetan Tomo. Mm -hmm. So Wim Hof, through a number of, through his research in the last 30 years, is not only able to consciously control his immune system, but his inflammatory response, his ability to heat and cool himself, and his inflammatory response to disease. Now, what drug company wants you to be able to do that for one? None. Right. And two, is this a rediscovery? Wim Hof, and there's another gentleman that I write about. I, I touch base on them in my book because it's not, uh, it sounds interesting, you know, like discovering, our, you know, it's not aliens worse. It's us discovering a lot of history. Uh, that sounds interesting. It's like, okay, it's not aliens. It might be us. It might be these megalithic things. Oh, you know, we're older than we thought it connects directly to this question that you just asked. It absolutely connects to, are we rediscovering our hidden, what we call superhuman abilities? Well, first off, if you're only 10 to 14% conscious, that makes everyone feel stupid. And two, some of our abilities are not conscious abilities. The, the ability to go from a thing like Tibetan Tomo, which is, it's, um, an ancient Chinese practice or Tibetan that's, it's over 3000 years old and it's secret. You do it in a mountain and guys do it. And it's all secret and it's secret, secret, secret. And then they started teaching it here through some yoga things and, you know, it's secret and it's special. And Wim Hof, I'd not met him. And the first time I meet him, he, he all I'll say is he said without the uh, narrative, without the blanking on this, he said, <laughs> effing demystify. He said, effing demystify. You can do this. I can do this. We can all do this, but we forgot that we can do this. And I have learned through that practice myself. This is not some woo-woo imagineer problems going away in a program on a cloud. There's an actual compute, almost like a computer, like an on-off switch for a light switch ability for you to go from this uh, like conceptual magical meditation to people like Wim Hof, Steek Severinsen. He's another guy. He's the guy that holds a world record that held his breath for 22 minutes on one breath. And that isn't a parlor trick. It's not done in pain. I'm talking about being able to control the temperature, your heating, your cooling, your inflammatory response and your consciousness in a grounded physical way, right down to barefoot running and barefoot connection with the earth, that this is not just some uh, mystical concept that there are people like the two that I mentioned 
Ido Portal of the movement culture, Erwin Lacour of the movement culture of MoveNet. These are people who are considered superhuman that are all rediscovering human abilities. And what I endear and love truly about Wim Hof is his desire to share it with universities all over the world. This is someone who's well doc. You can watch documentaries on him anywhere you want. But when I met him, he's, if you watch a documentary about him, he's exactly like the person you're going to see in the documentary. He is that personable. He's that close, but your ability to immediately within minutes to, to reconnect you personally and everyone listening in 20 minutes can learn the Wim Hof breathing technique in a way that would connect you back to not only your earth, but some of your basic advanced abilities that you did not know that you have, but you do. And we're talking, again, we're only 10 to 14% conscious. So there's a lot of things we have to rediscover, including me and everyone and all the people mentioned. But these are people actually reconnecting and re, and more importantly, I guess that a good word would be reactivating these abilities that we all have. And Wim will swear, literally, up and down that you and I and everyone forgot that we went into some sort of amnesia, that we forgot that we have these abilities. And they are real. These are not conceptual. These are not, oh, I think it'd be nice to not be cold when it's 20 below zero. These are real. These aren't just you're telling yourself, oh, I'd like to really control my inflammatory response the next time I have a bacterial infection. God knows that's a popular subject. Oh, it's, it's, it's real. And there are people who go on and try it. And it's not just that, it's Steak Severinsen, also from the Netherlands area, uh, uh, BBC, History Channel, same deal. I have not met him, same research, same stuff. Has broken some of Wim's records, but the same deal. Cold, and nobody wants to hear this, right? Super cold water and cold temperatures mixed with a breathing technique where you not only immediately reconnect back to the earth, but I'm telling you mentally, you do not need to search for what you mentally think. You will immediately connect in a way to yourself that you have never connected. And it is, I guess it sounds a little cliche, but it's a little trippy in a way that isn't uh, abstract. And when I say trippy, I mean, if you learn this breathing technique, and I know a lot of people don't want to do the cold right away because it involves getting in cold water mm -hmm. and controlling your response. But I will tell you that there are people like that that are on shows that they're superhuman, but there's people like me experimenting because there's two parts. You and I having a discussion, everyone listening, and then taking away that this is that part where it's a search and rescue, not a search and recovery. Our history and our future is so advanced than from where we are that we need to grab these abilities like being able to consciously control our immune system and, and our inflammatory response and our breathing and our consciousness and where it takes you mentally is a real ability that you can practice, that you can work on, that you can start by baby stepping it and you can do it whether you start down the road through my book or through somebody else's or through all of it or read five at the same time. Cause I frequently do that. I read books like people watch TV. I shows. do too. <laughs> right. It's like, why not? I'm going to do an episode. I'm going to watch, I'm going to read a chapter and then I can't help it. I'll do whole series. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. isn't that fun? Yeah. It's just, it's because it, there's like, you can't keep reading and go, okay, now I'm going to apply one thing. That's boring.
Right. Same thing with writing. I think like now, like my next book, I'm actually going to write three books instead of just one. Well, you know, and it's so funny because they said that uh, um, Isaac Asimov was always working on 15 books at a shot. That he was like trying to bring four to eight to conclusion and that he was constantly writing eight hours a day, 15 books at a shot. We're always started. And that's a, you know, it's a great example and he's a brilliant writer. And that was a series that I enjoyed for a long time, by the way. A lot of people don't know this, but iRobot and the Foundation series are not separate series. There is an entire series and everybody says, oh, Asimov was great. And Asimov was the foundation for a lot of other people's sci-fi stuff. I don't think people appreciate until, because the book, I believe it's a 17 book series. It starts with iRobot, goes to Caves of Steel, which is the next book. And that's where it really, really, really starts. But iRobots, whatever. And he writes them all out of order. So all the way from iRobot to Foundation and Earth, they're actually one series. And in the later books, Asimov actually has an author's note in the front that says, hey, I want to tell you about all my books in order because they're not written by year. They're actually written out of order. The last mm -hmm. book he wrote before he died was Prelude to Foundation. And I'm only geeking out because the entire series, it has like the concepts of the movie Avatar. It has the concepts for Star Wars and Star Trek. And it has about consciousness and moving planets and interconnectivity. Asimov wrote this entire series and it's 17 books. And a lot of people think that the iRobot series is like five bucks and the foundation series is a few bucks, but it's not. It's this long ass series that, oh my gosh, it just entertained me for years. I just, <laughs> I think I took a couple of years and read all 17 books and I own them all. Love that book. Love that right. series. Not a, not, awesome. a, not a point right now, but, <laughs> but yeah. But like you said, it's like reading, I think, so the, the point I was getting to is like, whether it's Steve Severinsen, Wim Hof, uh, some of these other people like Ido or that's IDO, Ido Portal or Erwin LaCour in the movement world, your physical body or, or Mark Sisson, like think primal blueprint, think primal living or uh, Rob Wolf, your diet isn't just about eating well and not hitting the Ferrari with a hammer once a week, once a day. You never do that to a car. You never put oil in the gas tank or, or gas in the radiator fluid or radiator fluid in the windshield wiper. You would never do that to a car. Yet with the human body at 10 to 14% consciousness, you know, we feed it like cockroaches and we expect it to run. And we don't make the connection that between the consciousness factor and our meditation and our grounding, our physical grounding to the earth, that our movement, our meditation is not a mystical experience. Like Wim said, effing demystify. We can do this in a way that is so mind-blowingly present. It's not this extra sensation you get when you're half asleep or kind of blasted out of your mind. By controlling in a very intentional way your diet, your exercise in a very connective way. All of it together with, with, with this cold and what these practitioners are doing and with our ancient past and what we're learning, all of it is a connection to our ancient past 
and therefore our future because we haven't even touched base after everything we've talked about. We haven't talked about conscious. You, you mentioned the, the, mm-hmm. the, the medium. Yeah, it's going to have to be part three. We have three. genetic memory, <laughs> right? Because genetic memory, I will table this, but just everybody out there know that in 2008, we also figured out how to use genes to create memory, our actual genes. We have re- and I'm going to tell you right now, we rediscovered how to use genetic, our mitochondrial DNA, to store. The first thing they did, Harvard stored a 50,000-word book on DNA. And right now, everything the human race knows can be stored on three creatures the size of elephants. So you could genetically store indefinitely because you can pass it down. So when people, like maybe the third part, we're going to talk about when people imagine a past life, there's a good chance that you're reactivating the stored backup of another human consciousness. Yes. Actually, I have... um not today. I have somebody coming on who's going to talk about past lives this week. Too. So, wow. Yeah, I've had him on before. He right. he was really good. He does uh, like dream interpretation, but he's also really into um, past life stuff. So. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. There is a lot in that Thursday, field that. I had one other past life guy. He was a regression hypnotherapist, but I didn't get much out of him. So, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> well, there's it. It's such a broad subject, and when you're looking at it, it's difficult to say. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people always say, "Why well, was Cleopatra?" You know, they were never Bill the elephant dung guy at the zoo. Mm-hmm. You know. They, they're always somebody famous. They were never, you know, well, I spun yarn. I raised sheep. You know, uh, now I take that back. There are, I do bring up the fact that there are people who will say, I'm pretty sure I used to be a farmer and they'll fill in blank X, Y, Z. And then an excavation will happen. And then there's a farm exactly where no one ever knew there was a farm. And it was exactly where that person said there was a farm. And so how would they know that? And the first thing is, oh, well, you must have lived a past life. And again, it's the the identification that is it a past life of yours or is it a past life that you are genetically storing? And that has to do with uh, not only the depth and capability of our genes, and the technology of those, which comes back to our first part of the conversation, because uh, DNA, we, we didn't know there was a double helix. And then we learned that there was a quad helix. It took 26 years before we go, oh, wait, there's not a quad helix. There's a, there's a, or a dual. There's a quad helix. Oh, wow, we didn't know that. And then we're like, okay, well, we've, we've mapped the human genome, but there was just an announcement in the news. I don't know if you saw it. It was on Ancient Origins. It was on Daily Mail. It was on Life Science. It was on a bunch of sites, none of which I'm paid for. Dang it. <laughs> anyway, but I like to keep up on the latest stuff. And one of the things they pointed out was there's an unknown. This is mainstream standard science saying there's an unknown human ancestor. Yeah, no kidding. Really? And, and because we have the genetic testing from Brian Forrester last summer, 
and I know we mentioned it for a minute, but just mm-hmm. to remind everybody, uh, it took three years of research and abilities, but Nassim Harriman and Brian Forrester did genetic testing on the Paracas mummies of Peru, which these are elongated skull for all. So for all you alien searchers out there, the Paracas had these elongated skulls. And when you look them up, if you've never seen them, these aren't people who were smashed together with the board. There's cultures, there's mimic cultures, just like the Egyptians and the, the dynastic Egyptians, the dynastic Greeks, the dynastic uh, Chinese and Harapin of India. There are dynastic cultures that mimicked something they saw from Bolivia to Africa to South Africa. Yes, I said South Africa and Africa and Europe. These elongated skulled people and in Peru on the coast near the Nazca lines, they were called the Paracas. And what's interesting is that they don't have the same suture lines in the skull that we do. And I showed surgical nurses that do surgery. I showed two surgical nurses and three doctors the photos of the Paracas skulls. And they're like, that's literally first words out of their mouth. Not possible. They have a suture line where when you look at the a human skull, you'll see uh, three hemispheres. You'll see those zigzag little lines. Mm-hmm. Well, the, pra- the Paracas only have one. And then the skull attaches in the back of the head. We humans, standard humans that we know of, the skull attaches to the spine in the middle of the head but not the Paracas, it goes in the back. And they, there are veins, I'm just gonna tell you they're veins, but they go in through around your spinal column and in the back of your head, you have four-ish. And the deal is this is how the, they, the brain gets fed blood and or things that it needs. But the Paracas, they're located in completely different locations. These are not anomalies, folks. These are serious genetic differences that until we have an answer should be like the running first, second, first page, uh, well, cover, first, second, and third page, like what's going on today with this story. And it wasn't until last summer that anyone did any genetic testing and six, according to Brian Forster so far and Nassim Harriman's work currently. And mind you, I got to sit with Nassim and him talk about the genetic tissue and oh my gosh, that was, that's a whole nother, that's part three. But for now, for everyone to know, these are human beings with elongated skulls that this is not about aliens, folks. This is about how little do we know about the human race when there is a race of humans with a literally different bone structure, vein structure, head structure, and six genetic markers we don't know of that live in Peru that the genetic markers at a minimum show that they lived in Eurasia. They lived near Crimea, but they ended up in Peru. That wasn't that, that those genetic markers, those genetic markers aren't supposed to be there. I just mentioned like 10 things, all of which like Huelaco, Mexico, like, you know, tying it all back to the beginning. Each one of these things represents a house of cards. And meanwhile, we have people who are active and like to do things and like, what do I do with all this info? Why am I listening to these guys talk? And I'm telling you right now, besides listening to your podcast more and buy my book, please, because I want to keep doing research. The reality yes. is, right? The reality is, is that the, whether it's water consciousness, meditation that actually helps you control your inflammatory response, who wouldn't want to do that? Or your real history, 
all of these things are valuable from error from your faith. It's not about destroying your faith, but it's about our, our total connectivity as a society. All of this is relevant and all of this is useful and helpful to you. I think to everyone. And I do too. That's one of the reasons why I do this podcast. Oh man. And I so appreciate you having me on for exactly that reason. So, so, that's what um, this is all about. So, so I got to get, I got to wrap this up because I have another one scheduled. Um, sure. Where can my listeners get your book? Yeah, it's not Aliens Worse, it's Us, Discovering Our Lost History by Jared Murphy. I am on Amazon, and I have been working very hard on an audio book. Uh, give it some more time. I am working on it. It should be out within a month. I have worked really hard on it, but right now you're going to find me on Amazon. And I do have a YouTube channel, but all I'm going to do is ultimately point you all back to listening to uh, exactly your podcast. So I want people to start heading back to where we do these interviews and the sources. And then, and then as a compliment, of course, uh, get the book. Absolutely. And what's the next book going to be called? Do you have a title yet? I, I don't, but it's, uh, it's about the, well, remember we talked a little bit about those ancient mines yes. and rock, rock cut ruins. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of time has been spent. I think a little more detail needs to be done in polygonal construction and, and those stone spheres and truly the waves and frequencies. The other thing that I'm spending time on with researchers and I, I spent a month in South Africa is there are some absolutely unestablished ancient societies that tie into the survival cultures of these ancient high tech humans. So part of what I'm writing about is these rock cut ruins that again, they're even older or as old as the dolmens that are being found all over the earth, which I'm, so it'll be dolmens, rock cut ruins, ancient giant cave systems like at Petra and why are they advanced and how are they advanced? And for those that want to go down a super tech road, I'm going to talk about that. And for those that just want to like, just Google the general subject, I'm trying to balance both so that everybody can take a look and you know find a piece for them to not only educate but incorporate in that search and rescue for their own future yes and we're going to dive even deeper into that on part three we get into some consciousness talk thank you so much and thank you for all you listening to giving us your time and having me on again yes thank you can't wait to have you back again yeah, uh, we'll talk with you soon. Yes. Thank, thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Jared, for being on. I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. 
and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.